Welcome to another Calvary Baltimore B-Side with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. B-Sides are a companion to the weekly sermon, giving an in-depth look behind the teaching. And now with running commentary to complement this week's sermon, here's Pastor Josh. Welcome. Welcome to B-Sides. Um, we are in Revelation chapter 11. Uh, we're going to read uh, quite a few verses today. Um, yeah, let's let's jump right on in. Um, before we do, why don't we why don't we pray for a second? Uh, God, we love you. We pray that you would be with us in this time of study. We ask that it would be pleasing to you. We ask that it would be um, accurate and rooted in truth. And uh, God, we pray that you may use this to sharpen us. Use it to bring more glory in our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Well, let's hop right in here. Revelation chapter 11. We'll, we'll get into verse, to verse 1. Oh, man. There's something about coffee. I started dying. You know what? Total sidebar. I, I started... My kids are back to school now, so my new routine is I'm up at 5.30 in the morning to go to the gym. <laughs> and I'm so thankful that I'm well enough to go again. Uh, but, oh, man, I am. It's just, it's taken me a while to get going here. Uh, also, uh, tonight, we're, we have a Bible study uh, at, at, in Hartford County. Uh, it starts at 6 o'clock tonight uh, in, in Bel Air. I am so excited about this study. I know I say that about most of them, but I'm really excited about talking about the three temptations of uh, Jesus in the wilderness from Satan, uh, Matthew 4. It's some killer stuff here. So if you're available, I would recommend. If not, you can check up the, the teaching later in the week. Um, <clears throat> so anyways, Revelation chapter 11, uh, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those worshiping there. But do not measure the uh, the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Verse 3, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth, uh, uh, a type of... Uh, dressed to, to symbol mourning. So they're mourning over the state of Jerusalem. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague so often as they desire. You know, I have read this text so many times. And for the first time, I just caught that they have the power over the sky. They have power over the waters. And they have the they have to, the power to strike the earth with all kinds of plagues. We have the sky, we have the earth, and we have the waters here. Uh, I just noticed that all the they have power over all of 
earthly creation here. I, I've read this a hundred times and I just caught that. Uh, verse seven, not actually a hundred, but a lot. Uh, verse seven. And when they have uh, finished their testimony after three and a half years, uh, the, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. Uh, let's pause here. Verse 8 is one of the saddest verses, uh, certainly in Revelation, may, maybe the whole Bible. It's, it's, it's up there for, for being a very sad verse. Um, and for a few reasons. First, the body of the two witnesses will be left to rot in the sun as a means of celebration and, of course, to dishonor them. You, in ancient culture, would not bury your enemies if you had particular disdain for them. Um, we see sometimes in Mongol history, we see that in ancient medieval history, we see that, of course, all the way back in Assyrian and um, you know, early, early history where they would string up bodies on walls or put them on spikes or, um, you know, we saw that with the story of Saul. Remember Saul was body was hanging. Uh, you, it, it, when you don't bury your enemy, it's a means of dishonoring them even in death. Um, secondly, this is the city where the Lord was crucified, uh, where they killed an innocent man, uh, Jesus, and here they are doing it again, but this time with two men. Notice that it says where the Lord was crucified. So the connection here is that Jesus was unjustly treated and killed in this city, and now it's happening all over again. And like the crucifixion of Jesus, how the Jewish people used the Romans to do it, here the Jewish people used the Antichrist to do it. They're going to a new Rome, a new Caesar, to do their bidding. They've learned nothing from the crucifixion in these thousands of years. And then thirdly, Jerusalem is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. And I have two things to say here. First, or A, who calls it Sodom and Egypt? Who symbolically calls it Sodom and Egypt? And to me, from the context, it must be God. God in heaven seems to have nicknamed Jerusalem, Sodom, and Egypt. Sodom being a place of absolute filth, if you remember from the story of Abraham and Lot. Um, and of course, Egypt being the place of bondage and slavery. In the book of Revelation, Israel, what we see here is as they are both Sodom and Egypt, Israel in this book, will have finally reached the apex of its apostasy and vileness before God. They have become like the archetypes of evil society all throughout the Old Testament. They have become just like them, according to God. And this is what's going to be just before God pours out his spirit upon that city and pulls them where there is nothing worthy within themselves to receive God's blessing. But it's all of God's grace. And then B, Jerusalem is introduced to us here as the, quote, great city, unquote. That's a really odd statement. That's really odd. If, if this is a new Sodom in Egypt, the question is, how is it great? It's not great in 
morality. It's not great in, 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 in being good for the world. And then, of course, we're going to see that an earthquake takes place and, it, place and a tenth of the city falls. And there were 70,000 people. So there are only 70,000 people living in this city. So it's not really great even because of its size. It's not like this end time Jerusalem is going to be a massive city or, I mean, it's going to be 70,000 people that live there. So what seems to be communicated here is that the Bible is connecting us to the other great city in Revelation. There's this great city and another great city in the book of Revelation, and that's the city of Babylon. In Revelation, Babylon is also called the great city. Now, I'm not sure where I stand yet, but either Jerusalem is the new Babylon, and I know that sounds crazy, but I'm just, I'm still working through these things, or at the very least is like Babylon, as they're both called the great city in this book. So either way, Jerusalem has become the symbol, as the symbol of worldly influence and evil. So if the term the great city is alluding to Babylon later in this book, then God has just given Jerusalem now three evil titles. Remember, this book loves threes and sevens. They're all over the place. And God has just given Jerusalem possibly three evil titles, Babylon in the great city, and of course, Sodom and Egypt. So as the number three is the number of holiness, then an evil three would be a type of anti-holiness. And remember, it says that they were given to trample the holy city in the opening verses of Revelation 11. So now here, the holy city has been trampled upon and has become the anti-holy city. It's become the evil city. Um, and so maybe there's some connections happening here. And then verse 9. For three and a half days, some of the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. An interesting note here, that the nations gaze at the bodies, but the people of the land rejoice over them. So we have lookers, and we have, we have gazers, and we have rejoicers. Uh, but specifically, gazing at and rejoicing over. So the nations can see the bodies, but the people of the land, the, the gay, the, the, the in the holy city, the Jewish people stand over them. And a few thoughts here. First, are the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations, are they people looking at the dead bodies within Jerusalem or by some other means? It's very possible that Revelation may be describing the internet and TV here. Very possible. That's how they gaze at these dead bodies on their devices, especially if we're talking about peoples from all over the globe. Uh, secondly, this would explain why the nation's gaze and the people of the land stand over them. The Jewish people are the ones in, the people of the land are the, are the people within Jerusalem. Their proximity is described. So I think that helps us understand that the tribes, nations, tribes, tribes and, and na languages are the Gentiles and the people of the land are, are the Israelites because one are gazers, the Gentiles, and one are, are over, and that would be the Israelites in Jerusalem. And my third thought here, and this is pure speculation, okay? So a little bit of a tinfoil hat's coming on. You've been forewarned. But this is this is where I'm I'm 
I'm actually leaning this way. Whenever you're reading a passage of scripture, you have to remember something very, very important, and that is called context. We have to remember the context of every verse that we read. Otherwise, we can make anything say whatever we want. Well, judging from what is the context of of chapter 11? Uh, Well, it was introduced to us in verses 1 and 2. The temple is being measured. That's the time in which all of this takes place, those three and a half years. It could be that these two witnesses within a temple context, are standing just in front of the rebuilt temple. Remember, they're called lampstands, which are in where? The temple. They said that they come right from the presence of God, which typically is associated with the Holy of Holies in the temple. Now, that means they come from God, but there might be a play here. They're they're talked about in temple imagery, and then, of course, this whole scene is set in a temple uh, context with uh, John measuring out the temple. So it could be that these two witnesses are standing just in front of the rebuilt temple within the measurements John has taken. And remember, the Jews are allowed to walk in front of the temple. They're allowed to be near the altar. They're allowed to get up close and personal to the to the temple, quote, the presence of God, unquote, though God's not going to be in this temple. And they could walk in front of the temple, but the Gentiles are not allowed near the, the front of the temple. They would only be allowed to, allowed to look at these witnesses, but the Jewish people would be allowed to engage with these witnesses. So it could be that these two witnesses have been standing just in front of the temple, which would mean if they're shooting fireballs at people who hurt them, that means they probably, like Jesus, have stopped all temple activity during their preaching ministry. So for three and a half years, the Antichrist has built this temple, and for three and a half years, they have stopped all sacrifices within the temple. And then those who try to stop them are then burned alive through the fire that pours out of their mouth. And then when they are killed, this may then explain the gift giving and the rejoicing. To the Jewish people, the obstacle through which that well, stop them from worshiping have now finally been torn down by the Antichrist. And the temple services may uh, will be allowed to finally be allowed to resume if this is what's happening. And if this is the case, then one has to wonder upon their ascension what one-tenth of the city was destroyed in their earthquake. Could this mean Temple Mount is the possible site of the two witnesses? Could those who rejoiced over the bodies of the two witnesses uh, uh, were the Jews, Jewish people in front of the temple? If the if this context is of the temple, could it be that the two witnesses were in front of the temple and when they were killed, uh, that the temple was filled with worshipers dancing and rejoicing over their dead bodies? And when they arose and ascended, could it be that the earthquake that hit took the very lives of the people that were dancing over their dead bodies at the temple on Temple Mount, which would let all the Israelite people understand who knew their Old Testament of Korah's rebellion. Those who came against God's true witnesses were swallowed by the earth. Now, again, 
Again, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but there's enough clues here to make this a very viable option, uh, in my opinion. And it's actually where I'm leaning. There, there's a very clear distinction that the Jewish people are over and the Gentiles are gazing. Well, the only place in Jerusalem where Gentiles weren't allowed were in front of the temple, which would also explain why the Jewish people hated them so much. They ceased their worship which would explain why they could worship once they were dead, which also would explain why that the Jewish people come to repentance. It could be that the part of the city that fell again was where the temple sat. I don't know. Again, I'm just I'm wrestling with all these things. There's a lot to, to manage in prophecy, and um, but just something I'm kind of holding within myself that may be what happens. Um, and then let's keep reading verse 10. <clears throat> And those who dwelled on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth, again, land. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. That's just awesome. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Verse 12. And then they, the peoples, heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, uh, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. You seeing it a little bit, maybe? Just a thought. I could be wrong. Just a thought. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Before we go, I, I want to look at something that we should remember. 42 months and 1,260 days are both three and a half years. And something we, we don't want to miss is the significance of the numbers. Remember so far in the book of Revelation, the church has been a seven. Like the seven days of creation, there were seven letters to the seven lampstands, the seven churches in chapters two and three. So, so far, the church has been described as a seven, meaning a complete, a, a whole number. We also need to remember that not only is the book of Revelation filled with sevens and the church is associated with sevens, but God has typically been associated sometimes with sevens, but also a lot with threes. If we think about the Trishagion uh, in the song in Revelation 4, where God is sung about in threes. God is holy, holy, holy. Three. The Lord God Almighty. Three. Who was and is and is to come. Three. Three sets of three. Three being a holy number unto God. Then we see the 144,000 in Israel. The 144 is the square of 12. It's 12 times 12. 12 being the perfect number of people, of leader, of unit for a specific task, a complete community. Jacob had 12 sons. The 12 tribes of Israel. In Numbers, Moses sent out 12 spies. In the book of Job, Job had 10 kids plus a mother and father, 12, a 
perfect number of people in his house. Jesus had 12 disciples. In heaven, God has 24 elders, 12 plus 12, a doubly perfect council, a perfect council times two. And then soon in Revelation, we will see Satan has his people. And unlike God, whose people are 12, Satan's people are a people of six, 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 six. They are a people of six, a lesser people, a people half of God's people who are a 12. So all through Revelation, numbers have been and will be symbols to communicate to us. Well, here we are in Revelation chapter 11, and God sends two witnesses to prophesy for three and a half years. God tells us essentially three and a half twice. And we are going to see that these three and a half years are the worst of the great tribulation because Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, the perverse trinity, will cause chaos on earth. But after the three and a half years, God's going to change it. He's going to stop it. Well, it seems the reason being three and a half, numerically, is half of seven. It's a half a week. It's not a times time. It's a half a time. It's, it's, a, it's a broken seven. It's a seven cut short. Now, what this may be alluding and, and cluing us to is that when we see three and a half in this book, it's a clue that an event has been cut short. A seven has been cut short. So, for example, when Jesus rose from the grave, he rose on the third day. The seven was cut in half. It was cut Short, Jesus would not remain in the grave. His burial was not the final, complete, whole statement. The three days and, and, and change indicates that the grave was cut short. That's why the church says from every age that the grave could not hold him because the week was cut in half. Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the tomb. So these two witnesses will prophesy for a half, a seven. A week cut in half. The meaning to this seems to be that God is going to cut their ministry of mourning in half because the Jewish story does not end in mourning. God is cutting the seven short, and at three and a half, he will bring about revival and repentance within Jerusalem. Also notice that the, the two witnesses lay dead for three and a half days again. Their defeat, say the Antichrist, will not ultimately win victory over God's witnesses. His victory will be cut in half. It will be a broken seven, and God's people will raise victoriously, which has been the theme all throughout the book of Revelation. Satan appears to be winning. The Antichrist appears to be winning. Revelation chapter 1, John is in prison for the gospel. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, faithful witnesses are being killed. In Revelation chapter 6, the church cries out, How long, O Lord? How long until you avenge us? And then the plagues and the trumpets and the church is dying and the church is dying. But this is not fulfilled to its climax. Satan and the Antichrist does not win. Eventually, the church, through Jesus Christ, the seven is cut short, and God's people will reign victoriously. There's, 
these numbers are employing to us, and especially as we look at these two witnesses, that God's people will not stay dead. Though the week is cut short and we ascend with Christ as he rose again on the third day, so will we. Now, again, that's metaphorically because as soon as we we die to be absent from the bodies be present with the lord but this is all symbolic to say that we that the church does not stay dead when we die we rise with christ again all these things are showing us the what what christ has bought for us uh, and, and what his intentions are and that he wins <laughs> essentially so with that we're done finito um, I'm going to drink more coffee and then eventually I'm going to eat something because I am starving. So uh, let's let's pray here. God, we we love you. We, we praise you. We thank you. We thank you for your word and all that you have contained within it. We thank you for your blessings and your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your kindness. And God, we thank you that on the third day you rose again. We thank you that as you rose again, conquer the grave, that so your people will rise and overcome the grave. And so we thank you for paving and leading the way. God, thank you that Satan's plan is not going to be seen to its final conclusion. God, that the seven is cut short. Thank you that the morning does not have full reign over Jerusalem, but that you will cut it short and bring revival. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Spirit. So be with us now. Guide and direct us now. Help us to, as we learned on Sunday, to be faithful witnesses for your glory. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for joining us for this Calvary Baltimore B-Side. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, our website is calvarychapelbaltimore.org. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you've been blessed by today's teaching and would like to donate to the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Until next time, keep drawing closer to God through the reading of His Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore B-Side.